So a great question I heard recently, and I've been asking a lot of coaches is, how do you get better at your job when you're not working? Or how I rephrase it for coaches is this, how do you get better at coaching when you're not coaching? Now, if you don't have an answer to that question, and I mean a good answer, I think today's episode might really be for you. Let's take a step back real quick. And I want you to think, I want you to imagine, how would you approach developing the total player? I mean, typically, whatever our sport is, I think we need, think players need to develop their IQ, their technical skills, their character, the mental side of the game. Like we, we, and we'd want them to study film. We'd want them to get into the gym or on the field and practice their skills with intentionality to have a plan. We'd want them to eat right, sleep well, cut out bad things that are holding them back. We'd want them to work on their leadership, maybe read books, listen to podcasts, get feedback from others on their play, on their leadership, on their character. And we'd want them to get coaching, coaching from you and other trusted coaches who understand where they want to go, what their goals are, what's important to them, and where they need to grow, right? We'd want them to get that type of coaching. Now, how might that approach, the approach that you would design for your player, how might that approach be similar to that of your own development? And why wouldn't we as coaches take a similar approach? Because I don't think we often do. Today's conversation with my friend and co-host Nate Sanderson is around in an intentional approach for our own development. I think you will get a lot of value out of this conversation with things that you can apply. But before we get into that conversation, I just want to let you know about how I help coaches with this development outside of the Coaching Culture Podcast. For any first-time listeners, my name is JP Nurbin, and I founded TOC in 2017. And I'd encourage you to check out our newsletter. We've got weekly articles as well as the notes to that week's episode of the podcast in our newsletter. Beyond just adding more tools to your leadership and coaching toolbox through this podcast and articles, what I do is I teach and coach coaches on a framework for building culture. And that framework is called The Culture System. And you can read all about it in my latest book, The Culture System, which is available on Amazon and Audible. It's full of practical ways to build your culture as well as case studies and other unique stories of the ideas put into practice. Now, if you aren't a reader or you want to go deeper and really train you and your coaching staff in the leadership and culture framework of the culture system, you can take our incredible online course. You can learn more about that at tocculture.com. Now, outside of the podcast, articles, books, and online courses, uh, at the core of our work is coaching coaches. At TOCculture.com, you can learn more about how to join that community of incredible coaches, which is made up of basketball, ice hockey, lacrosse, soccer, rugby, track and field, volleyball, American football, baseball, softball, and I'm sure I'm missing a few other sports, but you know, there's all these different sports that are represented in our community of coaches. And also, our coaches coach at all levels. Some of our coaches you may have even heard of at the time of recording this episode, Florida Atlantic men's basketball team, FAU, is headed to the NCAA Final Four this weekend, and I'm incredibly excited for head coach Dusty May, who is one of our TOC coaches. Uh, when this episode drops, I hope he is preparing for the championship game on Monday. Uh, regardless, it's just incredible to see 
a transformational leader who is intentional about his development now on the biggest stage of American sports. Like I said, you can head on over to tocculture.com to learn more about our coaching program and community. There'll be a link in, there's a link on the website as well as in the details of this episode to reach out to me, to give us some information on you and your situations that we can connect and see if one-on-one coaching is right for you. Okay, enough about all that. Let's get into my conversation with Nate. JP, I remember a few years ago, back in February of 2020, we had a guest on the podcast that dropped a phrase that at the time was really offensive to me. He said something to the effect of, if things are broken in your culture, it's your fault. If your players aren't playing hard, if your parents are upset, if your kids aren't bought in, it's your fault. And I remember when I heard that and I was applying it to my situation, I thought, it just isn't that simple. I mean, doesn't he understand the parents that we're working with or the players that refuse to buy in or the administration that wasn't giving us support? Like, surely this couldn't be all my fault. And yet, as I look back and as I've thought about just some of the growth that's come out of that situation for me personally over the last couple of years, starting from a place, assuming that it's my fault, doesn't necessarily absolve everyone from blame when things don't go well. But what I found, JP, is that it has empowered me to be able to grow. And it's empowered me to be able to self-reflect in ways perhaps that I didn't before because I was too busy blaming somebody else for things that weren't going well. Now, you and I are working with coaches here kind of at the end of their basketball seasons. And as we reflect and we look back on things that went well and things that didn't go well. We have these conversations. A lot of times, excuses and blaming and sometimes even a victim mentality starts to surface in some of these postseason reflections. So, JP, when you see the postseason press conferences on Twitter and you have the end of the year conversations with coaches or they reach out to you because things didn't go the way that they thought they would, what are some of the self limiting excuses? that you hear commonly from coaches when they're trying to fix some of their systemic problems in their programs. Yeah, it's really concerning and it's really difficult in these conversations because what they think is the problem really isn't the problem, right? And it's all about others have to change. My players have to change. My assistant coaches have to change. The parents have to change. The culture has to change. They talk about their players and it's like, my players don't take feedback. They have a poor mistake response. They don't have mental toughness. They're, we don't have any leaders here. You know, our, our players, they don't have good habits. They're not disciplined. Um, they blame all the time. They complain. They, de- you know, they just defend. They're uncoachable. And they're la- laundry, they have a laundry list of complaints of, about everybody else around them at times too. And Listen, it's not always that bad. It's not always just people coming out and complaining. They are trying to find solutions. And I appreciate that. You know, coaches reach out. They're like, hey, how can I make things better? The culture is not great. They are trying to find solutions, but so often the solutions are really just centered around other people changing, not them changing. And I'm I'm so guilty of this. I, I spent really honestly the first eight or nine years of my coaching career thinking that it was everybody else that had to change, not myself. When I flipped it and I started looking at myself and I started to listen to feedback, 
And it wasn't just about the development plan for my athletes or even the culture. It was like, what's my own development plan? How am I growing? Because I looked at it and, and I might have said all those things about my players, not taking feedback, you know, no mental toughness, not leaders. The reality is I didn't take feedback well. <laughs> I didn't respond to mistakes very well. I, you know, um, I didn't have great disciplines in my life. You know, I didn't take care of myself. I yeah, I did I invest in my growth some ways, but not with the rigor that I might have expected out of my players. And so I think my encouragement, like and really what we want to have a conversation around today is really focusing on what's our coach development plan this offseason. And it sure as heck better not be a bunch of tactical stuff or even how we teach our sport. Because if that's all it is, it's all about the tactical or the teaching, or it's even just like what new cultural strategies can I pick up around how to build my team culture this year or new mantras or phrases like no BCD or you know, energy giving behaviors, which I know is EGBs is a big thing that coaches are talking about measuring this year after March Madness tournament. Like if it's just a bunch of like new strategies or tactics, we will fall so short of our potential, not just as a coach, but as a, as a human being and, and what we can offer others in our life. Well, I know when we've talked about personal development, coaching development in the past on the podcast, and we've mentioned how you know, so often, and I've been guilty of this myself over the years, you know, coaches jump to Twitter and they want to put in the, the new set plays or the new offense that worked in March Madness, you know, and, the, and they look back and they say, gosh, we can only score so many points a game last year. We weren't competitive because we couldn't do X, Y, or Z. So it must be the systems, you know, and we get hung up on the things in our sport that we think are going to transform and make our programs more competitive. But when you start to break that down a little bit, Let's just say for a moment that I'm searching for a new offense so we can score more points and be more competitive. But if I can't teach the offense, then it's not going to be as good as it could be certainly in my program, right? And for me to be a better teacher, well, that means I have to not only understand it well, but I have to be able to communicate it to players who haven't run it before. So my communication skills are going to be essential for the teaching for the offense to work. But that teaching and that that communication is only going to be received if we have the right culture. If we have a culture in place where we're learning and we're trying to grow and we're trying to constantly improve and we're open to new ideas, if players aren't open, it doesn't matter how well I can communicate. So the culture becomes important. And then if you back up and you say, well, gosh, my players have never really seen from me an attitude of wanting to self-improve and self-reflection and growth then they don't have a model to follow in terms of how we're going to get through the mistakes that happen when we start to put this in. So then it really comes back again to my behaviors that allow it to spread in the culture so that it can be received as I communicate and teach so the offense can actually take root and take effect. And I never really thought about it as a process like that. I always just thought about, damn, that looks like a great play that so-and-so ran in the final four. I bet we could do that. I never think about the depth of what has to happen for that to be successful. And for me, honestly, JP, over the last couple of years, in the offseason in particular, that's where we've focused like 100% of our development in our program is not so much on systems and strategies at all. It's really more about the human interactions and the cultural improvements that if we want to make changes for next year, we'll make that ground more fertile so that those seeds can take root. Yeah, I remember just talking with a coach this year, and they had read Doug Lamov's book, uh, The Coach's Guide 
to teaching and it's a phenomenal book that I, you know, you and I both would recommend, but this coach was talking about how they would try to put into practice some of these things, some of these tips and strategies that, that they learned around teaching, but they would go completely out the window because they would get so upset or so emotional within the game or the practice itself. Right. So it, it, it just comes back to this whole element at the core of it is how we show up, you know, and, and do we show up? It doesn't mean we can't ever have bad days, but as the leader, we probably have to have more good days than anybody else within our program. We have to be, like you said there, we have to be the example of how to respond to mistakes. We have to be example of learning, growing, receiving feedback, you know, taking care of ourselves. I mean, I think if we just think about some of the most talented players that we've ever coached, those ones with really high potential that never reached that potential though, they never fulfilled that potential. We always go back down to their character. Like it's always about the character of why we don't reach the potential. It's nothing else. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about you, Nate, is that you are, you, you, you do evolve tactically Technically, I think you've you've done a lot of videos and and teaching over the years here about how you teach the game and how your offense has evolved and defensive strategies. But like you said there, you you really are honing in more than ever on this cultural, this human side of of coaching. How are you approaching that this offseason? Well, I can give you this example, JP, is we've gone into our exit interviews this year. We finished up our season the middle of February, and we've had five weeks since then. And every year we've done exit interviews or every year for the last 10 years, you know, we've tried to meet with the players in the spring and talk about their experiences and meet with the coaches and talk about their experiences. And a lot of times for me, that's been focused on, you know, a little bit of last season, but really more the player improvement plan. Tell me about what role you'd like to compete with next year. What are your offseason plans? That sort of thing. But this year, I've taken a little bit different approach, and I think it's been really, really valuable for our program. And that is, I'm really trying to ask questions in a way that help me understand the perspective of every stakeholder in our program. So, for example, early in the season, you know, we talked about this on the podcast earlier, we lost five or six players the first week of, of the basketball season. And we had planned the whole year to have split practices between our lower level and our varsity team. And by the end of the first week, we didn't have enough players to do that. And so we chose to bring everybody into the same gym and practice together. The players that were just, we had one or two very beginning basketball players in the same gym as a couple of All-State kids. And that can be really challenging for lots of reasons. And so, you know, we did our best to try to navigate that the best that we could as we went through the year. But now I'm really asking you know, the perspective, I want to understand how did that decision affect players one through five, our starters? How did that affect our next group, our twos, five through 10, a little bit differently? What was the perspective of, you know, 11 through 13, the bottom end of our varsity team, or 14 through 16, who didn't end up dressing varsity and were only JV players? And what you come to find is that I get seven or eight different perspectives on what those practices were like. Five of those I anticipated or I had already heard before, heard from the captains, heard from one-on-ones during the year, but two or three of them were new and they were different and they affected how those players you know, responded or showed up at those practices because of the story that they were telling themselves that I didn't know I wasn't aware of at the time. 
the whole point of all of this is two things that I'm trying to personally get better at is one, in those one-on-ones and those exit interviews, I'm trying to create as much psychological safety as possible because I do want the unvarnished truth from our players, whether it's critical of, of that decision, critical of us as coaches or not. I just want to understand how they were thinking throughout the year, you know, during different points. Because as we found, our starters would look at that situation and say, you know, I wish we had more time to go against the twos, like ones against twos, as we used to do in a varsity practices. The twos are saying, we wish we had more time to go against the ones, but also wish we had more time to play with our JV teammates. So we were a little more comfortable there. The threes, you know, and the JV players are thinking, you know, we ended up out of practice or kind of separated on the side doing small sided games more than we wanted. So, you know, all of these perspectives are valuable for us. But the goal is, the learning is one, again, how can I encourage more authentic, real feedback and honest perspective? And two, hopefully that helps me to anticipate and be able to see through those different lenses better next year as we're starting to make decisions about practicing and whatever whatever else, and also learning for next season, the best way to ask the right questions or create the right environment to be able to get some of that authentic feedback during the season so that we can make adjustments along the fly with better information from our players. Yeah, I want to build off of that with two things, Nate. First off will be other ways to gather feedback, which is really critical throughout the season, in the off season. And secondly, probably one of the biggest problems I see when we get feedback, okay? So first off, another way to get feedback would be to send out an anonymous Google form to your players, to administrators, to teachers, to parents, right? Ask the teachers, what do they think about your program, right? Ask professors, what do they think about your players? Ask administrators, right? You know, ask parents. Uh, If you're sending out to your players, I'll give coaches here six really great questions. Three that I love on the culture. Stolen from Mike Abershoff, right? We've had him on the podcast a couple hundred ago. But, you know, what do you enjoy about being a part of this team? What don't you enjoy? If you could change one thing, what would it be? Then ask for feedback on you as a coach. What do you enjoy about me as a leader or, 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 or you know, playing for me? Or, you know, what do you think I do well? What don't I do well? Uh, and then, you know, what's one piece of advice you have for me? Or how can I be more effective? You know, just three simple questions there. S- same, same format. Gather feedback, right? In exit interviews, through anonymous surveys. We've got to do it, right? And a lot of times coaches are afraid to do that uh, because of what will come back. But when we take that step, because we have to take that step, we have to get feedback. We're giving it to our players all year long, at least once or twice a year, we can ask for it. The problem I see is that not only do we wall up, but we naturally have people around us who love us and do not want to see us hurt. And so when we get hard feedback and they see us hurting, what do they do? They, they just validate us. They affirm us. They completely brush it off. So I'm your friend or your buddy here, right? Like, and I see all of a sudden you're getting feedback, but this player says your program, the program stinks and you're a bad leader. I might be like, ah, oh, listen, Nate, it's just, just Gen Z, man. They're just soft. You know, they don't want like, you gotta, she's not for you, man. Move on. That would be the initial easy response. And it's going to be the response you might get from your spouse, from your assistant coaches. And those people love us and they care about us, but so often they are very emotionally tied to the situation. 
And honestly, we, we really need to not bring the feedback to other people and say, well, do you agree with what this player said? Because it doesn't matter if they agree with what the player said or not. What matters is the player felt that way, right? The player feels that way. Now, you might say at the end of the day, okay, after you evaluate their player's feedback and their feelings about the culture and the team and you as a leader, you might say, you know what? I could have maybe done this better or that better. But at the end of the day, they're probably just not going to be happy here because that player's values and that parent's values just doesn't align with my values and what we're building here. And then that's okay. But you at least have to go through that thought process of thinking and putting yourselves yourself in their shoes and trying to understand what they feel and why they feel that way. And we really not need to try to avoid seeking external validation when we're probably a little bit like run down as a coach from some of that feedback. I think one thing, JP, that's helped me a little bit with trying to encourage feedback sometimes that's critical of our decision making or leadership or whatever it might be, is that I'm really looking at it through the frame of what did I not see or what did I not understand or what was I not aware of when we were making these decisions or how these decisions were being perceived? And I'll, I'll give you a quick example. So the first couple of days of our season, while we still thought we had enough players to have two separate practices, we, our, our varsity team had, I think, 13 kids in practice. And two of those were freshmen that we just brought up from the start of the season because it was pretty clear from the summer that they were going to play. And so they came to the varsity practice. Meanwhile, we had a group of sophomores that were practicing separately. At the time, there was maybe seven or eight of them together. Um, and we told them, we're just doing a little bit of review, and then we'll bring everybody together later in the week. But varsity's going to play on Saturday. We had like five practices to get ready for our first scrimmage. And so, you know, we're kind of giving them time to get ready for that. And I didn't think about how that explanation of we're going to let the sophomores review while the varsity is getting ready to play. And one of them said at the end of the year that it seemed disingenuous because we were sophomores and we played for a whole year. Like we ran the offense all last year. We played the same defense all last year. And at the same time, you have two freshmen that didn't run any of those things in middle school. And now they're just being parachuted into the varsity practice. So maybe this isn't really just about review, you know, and they took that a little bit personally. I never would have thought about it that way. That makes perfect sense to me if I was in that position as a sophomore being told that, and that made it frustrating for them for the first week. And I totally get that. So yeah, that's critical of me, right? In terms of the decision we made and how we communicated it. But again, it's a perspective that I lacked that now I feel at least a little bit more empowered or equipped to try to see through, again, a lens that I didn't have when we made those decisions last year. Let's unpack that a little bit more. So knowing what you know now, what do you have to work on as a leader to be better next year for, for your players to maybe prevent more players from feeling that way? Not just in that situation, but other situations that might be similar. Like what's the skill as, as a leader that you have to develop? Well, if I back that situation up a little bit more, I mean, there were some other things that we botched that we could have done better. So for example, last year, we didn't have a fall meeting like two weeks before the start of the season to sort of start the clock on making a decision. Are you going out or are you not going out? So I thought at the time we had a pretty good idea of, or a pretty good handle on who was coming out. 
that was a mistake. That would have given us a little bit more information going into the season that we would have known how we're going to approach it, right? The second thing I think that we did poorly is as a coaching staff, and we were losing like a player a day through that first week. So the numbers kept changing. We make a decision. We have an idea. The next day we lose somebody else and then somebody else and then somebody else. So while that situation was fluid, we should have just said, okay, everybody's coming together. And then sort of sat down with our team and talked about, you know, maybe as sort of a mental health day for 15 minutes or 10 minutes to start practice. We're going to practice everybody together. We haven't done that before. Let's just for a minute brainstorm here about what are the advantages of that? What are the disadvantages or the challenges of that for each group involved? Just so everybody could sort of see the whole puzzle of how this was going to affect all the different groups. Because I don't think we, our captains understood that because we talked about it with them, but I don't think we ever communicated why we were deciding to split up practice the way that we were, like when we were all together with, with the team. So what's that skill? I mean, I think the skill is creating greater transparency. Uh, I was just on a group call with some track coaches last week, and that's one of the things that you know they were talking about how to put together relays, you know, and one of the coaches said, the thing that we really try to do when we've got six or seven kids that want to be in a relay is we say, look, this is the time we have to run individually by each spot in order to get this time to qualify for state. So just continuing to, you got to get to, you know, you got to be able to run your split in 10 and a half or whatever it might be, like communicating, this is how the coaches are thinking. These are the standards to get what you want. These are the reasons why we're doing what we're doing transparency is a gift and it's not something that number one, I always invest enough time in. And number two, I'm probably not real great at um, communicating what and why in an effective and efficient manner with our kids. And I think we want as coaches, players to kind of give us the benefit of the doubt. We want there to be that trust, but you recognize that trust is built over time and it's built through more of that transparency around the decision making. And, you know, we could, once again, I love your approach because it would be so easy to go, well, it's on the captains because the captain's council, they were supposed to communicate it to the players and they didn't. But yet you go back and you say, hey, okay, what could I have done better? And I think that that's like, obviously the type of coach development we need to be doing in the off season is, is working on, okay, what actions can we take? What this skill of more transparency, more communication, it's what the players need. Well, JP, let me ask you this question. If a coach called you up and said, all right, I listened to your podcast and you said, I listened to your podcast and you said, I know it's not so much about the systems and strategies in the off season. It's about me getting better as a coach, but I'm not really sure where to start. I'm not really, I've never thought about it that way before. What would you tell them in terms of trying to identify maybe the the most significant area or two, because it's going to vary from coach to coach, where they can begin to develop some of these skills that eventually will make their teaching and coaching better? Yeah, I think I would really try to develop your own coach development plan. And we do this with our coaches in our one-on-one coaching, but it really would be. So in a player development plan, like I outlined in my book, The Culture System, you really look at kind of five areas the you know players athleticism their physical you know physicality uh their tactical decision making skills iq 
Third thing would be their technical skills of their sport, relational character, you know, selflessness, care, those type of things. And then performance character, um, you know, mindset, mental toughness, competitiveness within us as a coach, I would probably have five areas as well that I would look at. What is our ability to our IQ for our sport, you know, our, our ability to make tactically good decisions. I look at us as a teacher. How can I improve as a teacher? The third thing I would look at is leadership, my ability to communicate, make effective decisions, you know, be decisive, those type of things. I look at a little bit below that is the culture. How do we coach the culture? How do we develop the culture? Um, if I had a fifth or sixth one, I would probably put like self-development below culture is like, how am I constantly learning and growing so that I can elevate everything else above that as well as self-care, like just taking care of myself. And so I think if you look at those categories and you can have your own, like, Hey, these are the five or the four areas that I really want to be a great as a coach, knowing that at the core, at the bottom is really us, how we show up. And then there's how we impact our culture and then communicate, like moving up the, up the chain there, up the ladder. I would look at the feedback that you gathered and so looking at the feedback that you gather from players, parents, I would really try to hone in on the common themes. You can't improve everything. And you might try to say, hey, I could try to improve in one thing in each of these areas, right? Now you might say tactically, we had a lack of buy-in. Players were questioning the systems we were running. So let's first off evaluate, is this the best way to play? And if it is the best way to play, then we have really stepped back and maybe I've gone to another coach and asked them for feedback that runs something different and say, hey, tell me about, you know, watch some film of us, tell us about how we play and let me know what you think. Um, you know, is our style play suiting our players? You know, do a real evaluation. And if you still come back to the same conclusion, then you got to go, okay, well, how can I be a better leader or communicator to get great buy-in, right? So let's say you get feedback on your emotional responses, right? This is common for us is a lot of, a lot of times as coaches is coach seems to get really upset or he seems to get really bothered or when coach is having a bad day, everyone knows it. Okay. So now you might look and say, all right, if this is feedback, if my players feel this way, if my staff feels this way, what is something I could do in that? And so I think it's the same thing is maybe go to a coach that you admire, right? And in, in your league, maybe ask them for how they handle themselves within within the game, how they're able to be able to stay more even keeled. Maybe it's going completely outside of your sport. It probably is honestly what you need to, to do is I would go to somebody that might be able to help coach you on that or give you some tools or skills to be able to be more emotionally regulated within games and within practices, as well as have effective tools to still lead, right? Uh, in those moments, you know? So I think it really is about coming down and saying, hey, these are the areas I could grow in. Where am I getting feedback in? And then trying to find what it would look like to be better in that area and some actions that you could take to make those improvements. I really like that suggestion of looking for the common themes in your in your feedback, particularly, you know, your end of the year kind of evaluation conversations and surveys and that sort of thing. And I want to piggyback on one thing you talked about there, you know, if it comes down to your systems and strategies and players not being bought into the offense, for example, you know, it's one thing to go back and say, "No, I I really do think and get confirmation that this is the system that's best for our personnel." 
What I would want to know is why don't the players embrace it or come to the same conclusion that I have that this is best for us? So, for example, if they just don't feel comfortable in it or they don't think they have enough freedom or they don't think that it produces enough space to drive it or whatever their excuses are, their reasons are, that's what I really want to figure out because to me, that really highlights the gap in communication. What And so I've got to build a case now. How can I convince them through data, through examples, through film, through just a walking through of my logic of why we landed on this place? to try to help them to be able to see it from a different perspective and hopefully become more bought in because they understand the why, again, behind choosing that offense. I'll give you another example, JP, that's maybe not as direct, but has been really beneficial for me coming out of our exit interviews. And one of those perspectives that has been common uh, is that there's sort of this perception in basketball, at least with our team, that once we kind of settle into the rotation, it's really hard to move up during the season. Like it's hard for eight to challenge nine. It's hard for six to try to get into the starting lineup. And so there's a feeling, one of a little bit of frustration that if you don't make it in the rotation or in the starting lineup, it just probably isn't going to change during the course of the year. And two, then what's really the point of trying hard when you know you're not going to be able to move up no matter what happens? Now, my initial defensive reaction to that is the game only allows me to play five players. My job says we're trying to win games, and so I'm putting the best players out there to give us a chance to win, and we can't do that playing 13 players, right? Like, we're just going to be limited by those constraints, and that's the nature of basketball, okay? That pushes that off on sort of, ah, it's the game. It's not me. It's the game, okay? But what I've started asking myself is, how can we better communicate or create a better experience or value those players more so that they continue to try to work hard, even if it is hard to pass somebody in our program, or they continue to feel valued, even if they're not in the rotation? That is a place that has led to lots of great conversations on our coaching staff since the end of the season, and hopefully allows us to better serve those kids. Again, not because it's a direct criticism as much as it's an acknowledgement of, yeah, this is hard about basketball, but how can we better serve and support those kids knowing the challenge of sort of this reality of the game? Yeah, that's a timely mention because I know in our next episode, we're going to have Anson Dorrance, the next two episodes, we're going to have Anson Dorrance, the podcast, and you know he shares so many great ideas and really emphasizes the importance of valuing our players that are the reserve players that don't play that much and really loving them and finding ways to love them, you know? Um, and I think this kind of leads me to my next point I kind of wanted to share, which is just the idea that when you have clear areas of improvement that you are trying to work on, things you're trying to work on, maybe you got a lot of feedback from players and even some other people in the program that you didn't do a good job holding people accountable. That's one we get a lot of feedback on from people is, hey, we need coaches to hold us more accountable or they need to hold other players accountable more, right? You know, so it's like, okay, what does that look like? But it is to find other people that might have be better in that area or experts in that area or listen to podcasts in that area or read books on that. And I would encourage you to move outside of your sport, outside of sports period, you know, 
Uh, if it's accountability, one of your great book on that is positive discipline. And you know, it, it, it helps you as a coach. It helps you as a teacher. It helps you as a parent, right? Like it's just go grow in that area, be a learner, you know, and, and have that learner's mindset towards that, but don't do it alone. If possible, you really try to engage other people, engage your staff in this. Hey, let's read this book and let's really hone in on this area or get with a few other coaches, uh, a few other people that want to discuss that book after you finish reading it, that talk about that podcast after you finish listening to it, whatever it is, but really trying to walk that path with somebody else so you can share ideas. It's really profound. I mean, honestly, it's the experience of us creating this podcast is often that for me. It's just us having a conversation around something and us sharing ideas and how we see things helps me to better understand whatever it is, right? We just have a greater understanding of how I can apply that to my situation. And I that would be my biggest encouragement is you just can't do this coach development journey alone. You have to engage others around you in that process. I love that idea, JP, of bringing your staff along in this development process. And, you know, one of the things that we'll do in April here, after we've done all the exit interviews with all the players, and I share all the notes of those exit interviews with every staff member and with our AD, I interview each of our coaches, and then we'll get together for what we call the autopsy in April and just sit around the table, you know, start looking at what next year might look like, but really asking around the table, you know, what stood out to you as you read through the interview notes and what stood out to you when you've talked to players after the season in terms of really trying to anticipate, okay, what are the biggest two or three biggest issues that we're going to have to be prepared for, for next year? And that process, doing it collaboratively uh, has been really, really valuable for us, not to mention making your assistants feel like, you know, they've got some ownership and they're a part of it and it builds trust and relationship there. But their perspective is really valuable, of course, since they've worked with players at different levels throughout, you know, throughout the season. Yeah, I love how you went through the exit interview stuff with your staff. I actually just got a text about two hours ago from a college coach that took the 360 feedback that we did with her. And she had another conversation with her staff around this feedback. Some of the feedback was from the staff themselves. And it was more of, hey, help me understand why people feel this way. Very open, very curious, very difficult to do that. Hard to do that and not to get defensive, but profound for this coach's development moving forward. And another way, per a group of people you can share the feedback with or your development plan, if you say, hey, these are three, four, five things I'm going to really work at this year to get better at, is with your players. That's just a couple hours ago as well on a call with a uh, college track and field coach. Similar thing, 360 feedback, sat down with his players pre-practice and said, hey, I want to let you all know that I really appreciate the feedback you gave me. And there's some things I need you to understand, right? Because I just can't change them about the current circumstances. But here are three things that I am going to get better at. And really talked about those three things, reshared his vision for the program. And he was blown away because what happens at the end of that 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 conversation, that meeting, a player that he thought probably absolutely hates him, right, comes up and says, coach, that was really good. I really, really appreciate you sharing that, right? Now he's getting, starting to get more credibility, more trust. And the next, if he's able to build on that, actually to take action 
and to show improvement, then he will really gain that player's trust and respect. And they'll start to give him the benefit of the doubt more often than not moving forward. The last thing that I would share with coaches too, when it comes to development, and I know, you know, you're a very deliberate person when it comes to let's lay out a plan. Let's go through this course. Let's read this book, you know, and discuss from it. The thing that I often am challenged with and maybe learn the most from isn't even so much the deliberate study of a skill or, uh, you know, something to add to our culture, whatever it might be. It's really wandering around in the world with an awareness that I have to get better at this thing that we've identified, creating psychological safety, for example, and just watching for places where I see it happen. So what's an example of that? Well, like I listened to Rich Eisen's podcast and I noticed that people are really open with him and there's a really friendly rapport there. And one thing that Rich Eisen does a lot of is he uses people's names, even though, look, He's talking to you know his guest for an hour. He still drops their name in the conversation frequently. And I see how their guests just become more and more comfortable when he does that. And I, I don't understand it, to be quite honest with you, but I've tried it. And so like in our exit interviews this year with some of the more difficult questions, I sprinkle their name in. I might say, instead of JP, what were your frustrations this year? I'm trying to loosen them up a little bit. So just saying, you know, JP, it can be challenging Lots of ups and downs during the season. For you, you know, personally, what were some of the biggest frustrations that you had this year, JP? You know, and it sounds redundant and silly, but for whatever reason, we've gotten better responses when we use players' names. With text messaging, if you get frustrated because players won't respond to a text, if you just start with their name, JP, are you able to make it to open gym today? We get like a 400% better return rate if a text message starts with somebody's first name than just are you coming to open gym today? Again, I don't get it, but I see that it works. And so I'm, I'm trying to start to incorporate an experiment with that. I'll give you one more here, JP, in observing myself. So I spent a lot of time substitute teaching. I've got two little kids at home, eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And I know inside of me, there's still a little bit of a rage monster that sneaks out, especially with my kids, secret be told. And so I'm really paying attention to when one of my kids does something that triggers that for me and my tone starts to change and I start to become impatient, really trying to be more aware of seeing that coming and then taking a step to de-escalate my own aggressiveness or my own intensity with my kids, because that can only make me better with my players. And so using my home life as a laboratory to improve, I think is another great way to experience growth even when you're away from your team. I don't think there's a better example or a better strategy or a better suggestion than what you just gave. Using your life as the laboratory for improvement because everyone benefits from that, right? Your players will benefit, your kids will benefit from it. And that, you know, your students will benefit from it, your employees, wherever you lead, whatever you do. And just the fact that you can all, there's reps all the time. You don't have to wait until next season, next game, next practice. You have the opportunity with someone right in front of you right now. If you need to be focused on being more present, then you can work on that. If you need to focus on keeping your emotions in check, you can work on that. If you need to focus on asking better questions, go work on that right now. Don't wait to the next one-on-one. -on -one. Don't wait to the next practice. Don't wait to the next game. 
Don't wait till next season. Just start working on it right now. And that's the beautiful thing around this development of coaching. And we talk about it and we don't, we, we can't say it enough in this podcast to become a better coach. You have to become a better person. Like just, it's so core and it's so fundamental. Okay. That's it for Nate and I's conversation. I hope you found it valuable. I just want to give you one more tip for learning. Okay. When I read a book or listen to a podcast, I take notes in a book, usually by highlighting. And with a podcast, I actually pull out my phone and use notes or the Evernote app for me, but um, just pull out that app and I create a note for that episode. And I just type in things as I'm listening while I'm running or doing the dishes or folding the laundry or whatever I'm, whatever I'm doing while I'm listening to that podcast. But then I take those notes and I look at them and I sit down with them and I write down some of my biggest takeaways, okay? And then I share it with other coaches or people who might find it valuable. And this act of taking notes, reflecting on the notes, and then sharing my takeaways with others, it's a really powerful learning system. So I'd encourage you to try it, not just to consume, but to reflect and then share. And that process there of teaching what we've learned to other people, it's really a game changer. Now, if you are inspired or encouraged or just ready to take more steps to be intentional about your development as a coach, I hope you'll take action. And my hope is that something that we offer at TOC, whether it be my book, the new Culture System Online course, or our one-on-one coaching program, I hope you will look at investing yourself through one of those options. Regardless, thanks for listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review if you think it's worth it, and share it with other coaches and share it on social media.